Well, good morning. If you want to know, I told Daniel I'll think about it. He thinks he can just pull me in like that. I will think about it. Forty years ago this spring, that would be the summer of 1980, I was a sophomore taking chemical engineering course, and I had organic chemistry. And with that comes a lab. I've heard some groans. And, and I was near the end of the lab, and the last thing we had to do was identify four unknowns. And I was down to my last unknown. So people, I am, I, I am on the cusp. And what they gave us to start was a printout of infrared and nuclear magnetic resonance printout. Now, the short story is you can put a compound through a spectrometer and it'll shoot an infrared thing and it'll shoot a nuclear magnetic beam and it'll give you a printout. And, and you'll know at certain certain number of megahertz that's this peak or it's that compound or it's this or that. And from that, you're supposed to be able to put together the compound. Well, I started and I was clueless. I, I had no idea. This was supposed to get me started, then you go into the lab and you do some tests to confirm it. And I am, people, I am nowhere, no how. But in the lecture portion of the course, our professor had spent, every, every other organic chemistry section had spent two weeks on spectroscopy. He had spent four weeks on it because he was an editor of a quarterly spectroscopy magazine. So I thought, if I could get Dr. Shapiro with me on this, Maybe I could be done quickly. So I went and I knocked on his door and he said, McFarland, come in. And I said, Dr. Shapiro, I know, I know, I know I'm supposed to do this, but, but you know, I got this printout and I, I'm just getting started and, and here's what I've come up with. And what I've come up with was really lame. It was really lame. And he shakes his head and he goes, oh, McFarland, did you learn anything? I, I guess, Dr. Shapiro, not much. And he says, well, don't tell anybody I'm telling you, but, but this is 40 years, so I think the statute of limitations has run out on this. He's probably dead now. But he, but he goes through the, the thing, and he, this peak here and this peak here, and, 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 and in 10 minutes, he solves my unknown. I don't have to do any lab work. I just go into my TA, and I said, hey, I've looked at the printout, and, and I think this is what it is. And she said, you're right. And I said, I'm done. Can I leave? Yeah, you can. Having him with me, made all the difference. I might still be at Texas A&M right now if he hadn't <laughs> been with me on that one. Well, these next four weeks, we want to talk about the significance of having God with us. One of the titles of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this morning, we, we want to start to unpack that because uh, the, the coming of Jesus was told hundreds, hundreds of years before he came. And we want to look at one of those passages that talked about his coming, God with us. So th if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to go verses 1 through 9, and we're going to wrestle with this question, how does God with us bring us hope? How does God being with us bring us hope? So that's Isaiah 42. And before we start reading the verses, I want to give you a little backdrop in the book. In some ways, Isaiah is kind of a sad book. It, it, it details the destruction of the northern king by a kingdom by Assyria. But then uh, Isaiah, led by God, predicts that 
there'll be a day coming when Babylon will come in and, and overrun the southern kingdom. And, and people will be taken off as, as uh, refugees, forced to leave Israel and to live in uh, Babylon, which is southern Iraq. And so that's the first 39 chapters of the book. And it's kind of depressing. But in verse 40, there's a change. And the, and the verses start this way. God says, comfort, oh comfort my people. And, and what God's going to say is, that's not the end. And, and he's going to, over the next chapters 40 through 66, lay out his provision for his people. And in that, he's going to talk about a servant named Cyrus, who's the king of Persia. And what God's going to predict is, Israel is going to indeed be overrun by Babylon. And for 70 years, they're going to go in captivity. Then there's going to be a change on the, the world scene. And Persia is going to take over. And a guy named Cyrus, the king of Persia, is going to free Israel and let them go back to their land. And God's going to call that person his servant. But we understand that servant will have a dual fulfillment looking even farther to Jesus. And so with that in mind, it starts this way. It says, behold, my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. Speaking of Cyrus, who will deliver Israel from Babylon, the king of Persia. But also, ultimately speaking of Jesus and his coming to earth. And here's what it says. It says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. So Israel is a, a people looking for justice. And God said, ultimately, it's not going to happen until my servant comes. And Jesus will begin that process of God's justice being put in place. Now, over the time I prepare for this, I have a, a chance to read various scholars. And, and one scholar put it this way, you know, this is just not a, a personal justice where we're made right with God, though it certainly includes that. And it's not the meaning there's going to be this grand redistribution of goods on a large scale. But it's going to be this start of God's work in human hearts. And, and when that starts, it will culminate in Jesus come back. And then God's restorative order will be put in place. But until we have the fullness of the kingdom of God... We will not see that justice. But the coming of Jesus reminds us that process has started. John Kenneth Galbraith was a well-known economist. He died in 2006 at the age of 80-something. But in his time as an economist, he made this statement. He said, in capitalism, man exploits man. In socialism, the reverse happens. See, what he's saying is, and I have no reason to believe Galbraith was a Christian. He said, I don't care what the economic system is. But if until human hearts are right, whatever the system, somebody is going to rise up. Maybe it's the state. Maybe it's some landowners or business. But it's somewhere, somebody's going to rise up and exploit people. And if we're looking for justice, it ain't going to happen. Until God gets in control. And the good news is, the restorative order started with Jesus coming. So, so, so this is how Jesus is going to go about bringing justice. Here we go, verse 2. He says, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. 
So he's not going to yell, and he's not going to shout you down. It's a little bit different than our political scene, wouldn't you say? And I'm not taking a shot at any part. I'm just saying the scene right now is shut up and listen because I'm not going to be Jesus' style. Further, verse 3, a bruised reed, very thin, he will not break. And a dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. Yeah, I'm also telling you, they're just waking up, wick your hand, psh, and put that thing out. Jesus isn't going to do that. He, he's going to be gentle. We look at the unrest around the world, and it's, it, it's pretty violent right now. People seeking justice, and it's getting ugly. People are dying. I'm talking about Hong Kong. I'm talking about Iran. I'm talking about Venezuela. I'm talking about places. It's violent, but that's not how Jesus is going to go. But, end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, lest you think Jesus is weak, we won't turn there, but in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 15, Jesus will come back a second time to set up his kingdom, and, and he will come back as a lion. He'll come as a lamb, but he'll come back as a lion, and he will, put every, he will crush everything. But, but in the meantime, he is working through human hearts. He's bidding people, he's asking people, he's drawing and he's changing hearts, and, he, and he's counting on, on these people to rise up and bring justice. Here's what it says about Jesus. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Jesus wasn't going to resort to shouting. He wasn't going to resort to violence. And throughout history, there have been people who have adopted this. 400 AD, a monk named Telemachus walked in to the amphitheater before a gladiator fight, and he said, in the name of God, this is wrong. You know what the people did? They stoned him. But that was the beginning of the end of the gladiator fights. When Gandhi wanted to bring change in India, he adopted a nonviolent approach. In the last hundred years, nobody has brought change to this country like Martin Luther King and his movement. But he followed Jesus. It was a nonviolent approach. Jesus knew what he was doing. Uh, he started a justice movement, and he'll come back to finish it one day. And, and see, so we, we're asking this question, God with us, God with us, how does it bring us hope? Here, here's what I'd say. God with us begins God's restorative work of giving life. God with us begins God's restorative work of, of bringing life and, and bringing hope and bringing justice. It's the beginning of a work. Have we seen it in its fullness? No, we haven't. We see it here and we see it there. But we have hope 
Because Jesus brings God's restorative order to this world. Now, I, I, I'm a Michigan fan. I'm a Nebraska fan, so I hate to bring this up. But it was a, it was a, rough, it was a rough college football weekend, Friday and Saturday. Okay, those of us who love the Huskers in 2017 rejoiced at the coming of Scott Frost because we saw, or at least I did, I remember watching Central Florida play in the bowl game, and I thought, we need that offense. Can you imagine Nebraska spreading the field with these athletes and this quarterback who's fast and can get the ball out there? And Man, would that be good to see in Memorial Stadium. It would be. Everybody's nodding. Amen, Pastor. It would be. Well, we're getting little, 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 little pieces of it. And the hope is, maybe as soon as next year, but maybe down the road a little bit, we'll see that in its fullness. We've seen a couple of pieces here with Martinez and Robinson and Spielman, but, but we, 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 need a, we, need a, we need a fuller expression. Amen? <laughs> Remember this interview, Scott Frost was asked, are you going to change your offense to play in the Big Ten? He says, no, the, the, the Big Ten's going to change for, for us. Well, I, I, we're waiting to see that. We're hoping. Here's the difference with Jesus. We don't know. We don't know how fully that will happen at Memorial Stadium. But we do know that Jesus will fully bring God's restorative order. We're people who can hope because God's work has begun with the coming of God with us. So so our passage goes on in verse 5. It says, thus says God the Lord. Now he's speaking to his servant uh, who created the heavens and stretched them out. So I'm the God who was there at creation, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and to spirit to those who walk in it. So, so I'm the one who gives life. Now, he's speaking to his servant, Cyrus, and ultimately Jesus. He said, I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. So Jesus, you're going to be a covenant to the people, that's Israel, but you're going to go beyond that. You're going to be a light to the nations, the Gentile nation. To do what? To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Is that literal? Or is that figurative? And my answer is, Jesus healed blind people. John 11 records he healed a guy blind from birth, and his parents denied it. And, and it caused such a stir that the, the religious leaders got upset and, and basically kicked the, the blind guy out of the synagogue because they said, Jesus is a sinner. And this guy said, yeah, I'm a sinner or not. I don't know what he is, but here's what I know. All my life I haven't been able to see, and now I see. And, and we know God doesn't listen to the sinners. I, I, don't, I don't get your conclusion. And yet there's a sense that Jesus opens the eyes spiritually of people too. They, they live for this world and, and they find out this world will not satisfy. And there's something more. Life is not found in the creation. It is found in the creator. Jesus answers this literally and figuratively, spiritually. Bringing people out of prison. Again, I, I can talk about uh, a, a demonic guy. They couldn't even house him in chains. And Jesus had the word, and, and, and this, this guy was freed. And I've met people who were hardened criminals in jail who met Jesus 
They had lifetime sentences, but they would tell you that they were free because they met Jesus. So then God speaks about this servant, and he speaks to his people in verses 8 and 9. He said, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. The reason God is speaking this, and the reason Israel is going to get into trouble, they are being taken captive by Babylon, is they've been worshiping idols. They've been worshiping images. You say, Andy, we're, 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 we don't do that. Yeah, but we're more sophisticated. We worship the material. We worship people's approval. We worship, worship security. We worship comfort. We worship all these things. And what God is saying to the human condition, which you and I have, is there ain't nobody worth worshiping except me. Here's what he's got to say in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. I've been calling my shots all along. He says, now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. So here's what he's going to do in the book of Isaiah. He's going to look, ah, probably Isaiah was written about 680 BC, maybe 740. He's going to look 100 years ahead, and he said, Babylon's coming to take you. And then you're going to go in captivity 70 years. Then I'm going to raise up this guy named Cyrus, king of Persia, and he's going to let you go back. So he's predicting the next 170 years. He said, can any of your images do that? Let's put it in context. So we've got a presidential election coming up in 2020. Maybe we have some ideas. Uh, let me roll the clock ahead 100 years. 2120, anybody want to take a shot at who might be president in 2120 if, if we exist as a nation? No, I mean, we don't have any idea. God does. He looked 170 years ahead before Persia's even on the world scene. He predicted they take out Babylon, and he predicted the leader, this guy named Cyrus, and he said he'll free Babylon. Now, people who doubt God say, oh, uh, you, you came back and, and you wrote that big end after the fact because no one could predict that beforehand. But that really depends on your view of God, doesn't it? My God can do that. Because, see, he's like the author who, who writes the book. He's outside of time. He not, this author can, can call any shot in that book because he's controlling. He's writing the story, don't you know? That's our God. He stands 170 years, 2,000 years, 5,000 it's no thing because he's writing the story. So my question is, who do we want to trust for life? Where do we want to look for hope? To something in the creation? Or to the creator? The world's struggling. <laughs> the hope we have is that God is with us. And his restorative order has begun. Now here's the irony of Christmas. I think one of the sad ironies. At a time we should be celebrating this God with us that he's come. You and I can get pulled into idolatry more than ever. What are you talking about? I mean, we've got to buy gifts, right? 
don't you want to be sure you have the right gift for that person? It kind of stresses you out. See, see that's, that's being, being beholden to the I, I, idol of, of people's approval. And if, if we're honest, I mean, we, we have something we'd really like to get, and I hope our, my spouse or my parents, or my, I hope they come through because I'd really like a, I don't know, what I like a, a new Xbox, a new shirt, I, I don't know. That's beholden to the idol, idol of materialism. And the day after Christmas, we might get on Facebook and see what they got for a gift. And, what did we get? Well, <laughs> mom and dad didn't come through. Spouse didn't come through. And on top of that, there's Christmas dinner. You hosting this year? Your in-laws coming? Hope mama-law. I hope... hope. Kind of, I want, I want dinner. I mean, I'm stressed. Get the place clean because it's got to look good. Again, we're, we're beholden the idolatry of people's approval more than ever in the Christmas season. Would we commit to taking our eyes off those idols? This, this is Jesus. This is God's point in Isaiah 42, 8, 9. You ain't going to get life there. You're only going to be held in bondage there. Would you take your eyes off those and lift it to me? I'm with you. I showed up. It's the beginning of my restorative work in the world. You want hope? Put it there. In the eighth installment of Star Wars, um, Kylo Ren, who was the Son of Han Solo and Princess Leia. Well, he went over to the dark side. And he's just finished uh, battling the good guys. And, and he thinks he's won. And, and he comes to Snoke. And Snoke shakes his head and said, you've accomplished nothing. What do you mean? I mean, I destroyed him. You missed on Luke Skywalker. Here's what he said. Skywalker lives. The seed of the Jedi lives. As long as he does, hope exists. See, the dark side, they, 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 they want to create despair. They want to crush hope. Here's my point. Jesus is alive. And as long as he exists, and he's eternally existent, hope exists. Now you get pulled into a lot of stuff this Christmas. You get pulled into a lot of stuff that stresses you out. Why focus on that? When Emmanuel, God with us, is with us. Jesus coming gives us hope. Because it's the beginning of God's work of restoring our world. We're going to move to a time of communion now. So if you're a person that is helping serve communion, if you would come up here, I'd appreciate that. We are, um, with communion, we are remembering. This is a memorial. We are commemorating the work of Jesus. He, we, we celebrate his birth, but he came to die. I mean, that was the plan from the get-go. 
All of us were created to be in a relationship with God. We went our own way. We did our own thing. Jesus came to live the life we're supposed to live and according to the plan of God, he was crucified and he rose again three days later. And so the, the bread and the juice is symbolic. It's, it's not the little body and blood of Jesus, but it, it's symbolic of his body being torn and his blood being shed for us. That we could be partakers in God's restorative order. That we could get our eyes off the idols of this world and find a true and real hope. So, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not have to be a member of North Point. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to share in this communion service. If you're not, please feel free to watch. No need to be embarrassed. What we'll do after I pray is if you guys would go to these two tables, the far tables out there, you'll see uh, there's a little tray there of gluten-free stuff if, if, if that's what your dietary needs. Um, Feel free to partake, and, and as our people who are serving will lead you in that. As we do this, we're starting the Advent season. We're, what, three-plus weeks out from Christmas, and it starts ramping up, doesn't it? you got parties, you got this, you got presents. Have you, have you finished your Christmas shopping? Have you started your Christmas shopping? And we get consumed, and we can forget about the hope we have in Jesus. I pray this day would be a time that we begin to prepare our hearts to focus on the one who signifies God with us. Let me pray, and we'll share in communion together. So, Lord, we are thankful for Jesus, um, Emmanuel, God with us. And his coming uh, gives us hope. It, it, it's the start of, of your restorative order in a, a world that has fallen apart without you. Lord, that uh, we first would, would embrace that and forgive us for looking at idols and be, being consumed with what other people think in our Christmas dinner and our presence and what we're going to get, what we're going to give. Uh, free us from that so we can look to you, the one who gives hope. Uh, Lord, um, I pray that we can celebrate you in this time. It's your name we pray. Amen.